What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Rule of Two. Today, we have a very special guest once again, Emily Swallow, the armorer from The Mandalorian. Today, we're going to be answering a lot of fan questions, talking about the Mando and some of her other work as well. So, hey, Emily, how's it going? Hi, it's going great. Glad to be here. Cool. We also have a very special guest with us. Uh, some of you guys know her as Padme in Theory's oh. fan film, but we're very happy that Catherine LaSalle joined us. Thank you guys so much for having me. And yeah. I'm just so excited to, to hear more from Emily. This is we are too. so special, so special. Cool, so Catherine, what are you kicking off? Oh, blessing you with the it. first question. Yeah. Oh, wow, what an honor. Well, I am so very curious and I hate to I want to I want to ask you about your your preparation process uh, as an actress specifically, you know, to invoke the most cliche that they say acting is reacting that <laughs> we all hear. But in your case, how what were the challenges that you faced as an actress in a scene where not just yourself, but your scene partners were all wearing helmets and you had nothing to go off of aside from perhaps body language and like tone of voice, like how how did you prepare for that? What was kind of like the process of like rehearsing that? If you could elaborate on. Yeah, um, I loved the challenge. It was so interesting because I had done mask work. My background is in theater and I had done mask work on stage, but I'd never done it on camera. And it's a whole different thing because you know, when you're on stage, you're in view of the audience the whole time. And so they can read your body. They can see how you're moving. When you're on camera, you're at the mercy of the editor. You're not always going to be on screen. So the audience doesn't always sort of have you in their in their vision. Um, so it sort of came together in pieces. I mean, part of the character came just during the audition itself because they asked me to do it. Um, and, and I have to say, I have like, people always ask me what the audition was like. It was one of the most low key auditions of my life. I was in the room just with the casting director and the camera and that was it. There were none of the big wigs were in there. And so part of me was like, is this a big deal? What am I auditioning for? And I'm so glad that it was that way because it meant that like, I couldn't, I couldn't get stressed out about it. Um, but they asked me to do you know, something resembling a British dialect right off the bat, I think because they'd been seeing a lot of Brits for the role. They're seeing British women in their 50s and 60s. So I don't know how I wound up in the room, but I'm so grateful that I <laughs> that I did. Um, and I knew in the audition that the character would be masked. So right off the bat, I tried not to do a lot with my face. Um, and so that sort of started to lay the groundwork. And then you know, it, it came together very gradually because I, I got the part and still didn't know much about it. And the next piece that sort of told me something about who she was, was when I started to go in for these wardrobe fittings. And when I saw that costume, it just took my breath away. Um, and it really informed kind of the, the she's so, um, she's so graceful, even though she is massive, you know, that, that the suit of armor is, is bulky and, but it, with the leather and with the fur, it's sort of supple. And so there was this gracefulness that I could, I could gather she had. Um, and then I finally, it wasn't until like a day before we started shooting that I got in the room with 
with John and with Dave and got to talk more specifically about who she was and what their reference points were. And John said that he, uh, similar to George Lucas, he had drawn a lot from Kurosawa films and from the Samurai Order. And that was tremendously helpful. And I remember like I went home that night and like rewatched all these Kurosawa films, like Seven Samurai to, to try to get the physicality and to get just these, the, the visual inspiration. Um, so I took all of that stuff and I, I, I put it in the mixing bowl. And then the real test though, was when we all finally got on the set together and we saw what worked and what didn't. And it was such a joyful uh, time of, of really just play because we were shooting episodes one and three at the same time. And I believe those were the first episodes to shoot. And so we were all really discovering together, like what the language of movement was of all the Mandalorians and what translated and what didn't. And we found out very quickly um, that any extraneous physical movement was really distracting. So it was important to be so specific. And that's partly, I mean, I, I discovered that stillness was really useful for her. And I was glad to make that discovery um, because it made my job easier, <laughs> but also because it really does seem to convey the type of power that she has. I love that she is somebody who is patient. She listens, but she is absolutely in charge of the room. And I thought that it was the most delicious surprise at the end of season one to have this character who had been so calm and steady the whole season. And then, you know, you put her in a room with some stormtroopers that are incredibly disrespectful and she just goes, you know, all hell breaks loose. Mm. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it, it was actually pretty comical as we were trying to find the movement because none of us could see very well. We're in these helmets with like tinted visors. It's like, we're all wearing sunglasses. Mm. Um, I couldn't see down. I could, I had no peripheral vision. So, I really had to just like trust that I was going to get where I needed to go and I wasn't going to trip because I couldn't like look down to check where I was going. It would look ridiculous. Um, but that set that I was in the whole time, the the kind of the forge, the armory um, was already really dimly lit. And then I'm wearing like sunglasses. Yeah. So there were so many I, I've said over and over and over, I really wish that they would release like a bloopers reel because there were just right. so many ridiculous instances of like heads butting together, Mandalorians running into each other, me tripping all over the place, me right. trying to um, trying to like figure out how to use my my welding tools, my blacksmith tools, but like barely being able to pick them up because the gloves that I had on were like three sizes too big and I couldn't really feel anything. So I'm so grateful. <laughs> for <laughs> the magic of the camera and getting the right shot and the fact that it all did wind up looking really incredible because it was a lot of mistakes as we were trying to find it but the atmosphere allowed for that i mean i think that the the tone that john sets is one where everyone in the room is of equal importance there's no egos there's nobody who you know, gets more of a say than somebody else. Everyone has a has an equal um, say in what's going on. I mean, you know, if it's your character, like you get to to kind of voice that more than random people in the room. Right. Um, but he's just so good at listening, and he's so interested in what people have to say and what they have to share. And I think that that's one of the reasons that everyone 
really came to the table with their A game. And uh, because people felt supported and people felt like there was room to make mistakes if necessary, and that would be okay. Um, so it was a really exciting collaborative environment and it made it so much fun to find what became um, the language of our movement and, uh, and, and the, the way we used our voices. It was a really satisfying experience. That, that brings up a really interesting question that I, you know, as I was watching it, um, kept sort of going through my head, which is you mentioned that, you know, after you got the role, you finally got to sit down with uh, John and Dave. Um, so from a, from a kind of a creative direction standpoint and, uh, and a kind of narrative leadership, what was the dynamic like between John and Dave and the director of each episode? Because all the episodes also had different directors. Sometimes it was mm -hmm. John or Dave, but other times it was Rick or, or you know, Bryce Dallas Howard or, you know, or whatnot. Deborah. You know, Deborah Cho and, you know, all this stuff. So what was the dynamic like between the director, John and Dave? Um, there was always, always collaboration going and communication going. And from what I know about how John, um, approached all the directors, you know, he knew that he had put together a group of directors that are very unique and each of whom has very specific talents, different ways of shooting things. And he really encouraged that, but he also made sure that everyone was on the same page about the story that we were telling. And from what I understand, he had a lot of meetings with all the directors early on so that they could get to know each other, so that they could, um, you know, sort of celebrate each other, so they could, so that they could be fans of the people that they were in the room with. And then in day-to-day -day shooting, um, John and Dave were very often around but never in a pushy way. They were just there to lend support. John would step in if there was something that he felt you know, needed to be adjusted in order to fit with with uh, the tone maybe of, of what we'd already established. Dave was our go-to encyclopedia of all things Mandalorian. If you had any question about whether or not something was accurate or whether you should say something a certain way or where, you know, where if you wanted to know backstory about where you came from, like he was the guy to go to. Um, and that was really nice because it, it it, I am constantly learning how much I don't know still about the Star Wars universe. So to have somebody who loves it so much and who knows so much was really reassuring. Um, so it, it just felt like it was like there was no doubt that the, that the director of each episode was the one who was running the show. But John and Dave were always there to support. And I think, you know, to take care of the story and to make sure that we were hitting hitting the marks that we needed to to hit in order to preserve what we were trying to make. Um, but it was a really, um, you know, I, I gotta say for something that had a lot of money put into it and a lot of moving parts, it never felt stressful. It mm. felt like we were all kind of like just playing in the sandbox together and getting to act out all of our childhood fantasies <laughs> and, That's you know, cool. just play Star Wars, which was so much fun. Yeah. Was that your first time um, experiencing the the was it stagecraft? It's called right. The the background uh, was that your first time experiencing that, where they change the whole sets and and the whole thing is a screen. Oh well, that I so immersive. Um, my set was all real. Um, oh wow! What do you call? It? I'm I'm supposed to know what like this a practical, practical practical. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, 
my forgery was all practical. There were elements um, like, you know, when I was burning things in the forge and when I was like yeah. mixing liquids together, there were elements <laughs> that they, they green screened <laughs> with like tiny little green screens, but I was not in the volume. I did get to, you know, kind of walk through there and see some of the things that they were doing. But um, I got to have a, a pretty practical experience, which was which was nice. I mean, it, it's fun to see what it looks like when you're working with something like that. But when you're actually in the process of making it, it's it's challenging to, you know, I mean, you're really you're just going back to when you were six years old and you're having to imagine everything. It shouldn't be yeah. that shouldn't be that hard. But I felt lucky that I my set was pretty practical and I got to have all the things that were supposed to be there. That's cool. Speak, speaking of the sandbox and stuff, what what's I'm very interested and it doesn't matter if it's an elaborate one or a small one or if it's just like a little tidbit. But what's what's your personal Star Wars story um, of how you got introduced to the brand and and the and the universe and all that stuff. If you don't have one, that's that's also fine. But no, I do. Um, I mean, there's never a time in my childhood when th there was never like a pre-Star Wars because I was born at some time, at some point, like <laughs> while the first three were coming out, and so I was too young to get to see them in the theater. Um, but I got to watch them at home, and I, I just remember play like I would play Ewok adventures in my backyard. And of course I wanted to be princess Leia and I would try to like do my hair like her and it was miserable. It never worked. Like nowadays I'm sure there would be a YouTube tutorial for that, that I could have, I could have watched to figure out how to do it. But Cat, it maybe, was, you know. yeah, exactly. I could get that on Etsy or something. Yeah. Um, but it, it was just always a part of my childhood. I mean, I have an older brother and so he, he, uh, did get to see it at the theater and, you know, came home and wanted all of the action figures and stuff. So I'm sure that that's part of the reason I was into it. Um, but yeah, and I, I, I never had a like pre star Wars part of my life versus post star Wars. That's so cool. And then to think that you would be in star Wars and you'd be such a cool character who mind blowing kicks butt at the end. <laughs> uh, speaking of which that was, uh, your stunt double was Lauren Mary Kim. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And she also did the mocap for Ahsoka, for anyone who doesn't know, in Clone Wars Season 7. Uh, did you get to work with her at all? What was it like watching her, you know, carry out the I did not. I, oh, okay. I, I have to tell you, I wanted so badly to do the fight um, yeah. in my, you know, in my very, like, you know, go get them kind of way. Because I, I love training for things. I love like actually getting to learn a new skill. It's one of my favorite things about being an actor. So I did approach Ryan, our very unbelievably talented fight choreographer. I was like, look, I saw in the script that um, in the scene that we're shooting in a few weeks, I have this fight. You know, I would love to train for it. And he was like, that's really sweet. Um, <laughs> however, there's no way you could learn in three weeks what you need to learn to make this look, you know, the way that we need. But he said, see what you can do. Maybe you can like do some of the transitions. And so I did work with somebody for a few weeks. Um, it was mostly based in the martial art uh, Kali. And that was really fun. It was fun to like, you know, learn some of the foundations of that. And, um, and so there are like, you know, some of the beginning and some of the end is me. But I okay. had no knowledge of what it actually looked like until I was sitting there watching the episode at the same time that everybody else was watching it. And... <laughs> It was ridiculous because, you know, I knew this big fight was going to happen, but I didn't really know what it was going to look like. I wasn't around when they shot it. So my husband and I are sitting there and it, it, it unfolds 
And we're both just speechless and my jaw dropped. And I was like, what the, like, that's, that's, that's me. What? Yeah. I mean, Lauren is just amazing. And I do, I love the choices that they made for that fight. I love mm -hmm. that she is only fighting with her hammer and tongs. She doesn't have any other kind of weapons. Um, I love the, the grace of it and the speed and the skill and, and how seamless it is. Um, it was really exciting to watch. And I, I feel so lucky that, that, uh, that I had somebody playing me who is such a badass because then I get to be a badass by extension. Yeah. No, it was a sick fight scene. It was very fluid and everything was just, it was very barbaric, which I feel like is what your character almost is, like this commanding, supreme sort of figure that just takes control of the whole room and everyone else that's in there. Yeah. And someone who sort of carries the lineage of, you know, this is the way and kind of saying, you know, what is the way when it comes down to letting them know what's up? Yeah. Um, well, and you know, little little tidbit john told me that originally when he wrote that scene that uh that she died she sacrificed herself and oh. i'm so glad that he changed his mind <laughs> well we she were all wondering sacrificed herself for what so oh yeah they could have and for for the child so that yeah. they she she wound up dying at the end when he first wrote it she so died she in, the gets in between she gets in between the melee and she takes the brunt of the, yeah. of the violence and then she takes the oh okay wow yeah. Interesting. Now, I something I don't know if you can answer this, but that fight scene also reminded me a bit of Darth Maul, just the fluidity of it. And something, you know, a fan theory out there is that your helmet has the same sort of horns that Zabrak has on their head. I've heard that theory, yeah. <laughs> is there any sort of thing you could talk about regarding that? Or is there any sort of Zabrak tie in? Nobody <laughs> nobody told me anything about it. So it just looks cool. Like a yeah. gladiator, I guess. All right, fair enough. Yeah. That's my question. I mean, you know, we 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 have to admit that uh, the armorer, as practical as she is and as skilled as she is, she's also. I think she makes some fashion choices because she's working with fire all the time, and yet she's wearing this fur cape. So I feel like there are some <laughs> adornments on True. her costume that might right. not have a purpose. They might just be because she's like, I think that looks good. Was that something that you were thinking about as you were shooting? Like, I have this fur cape to catch on fire. Like, is that a, it like, is that a It's Star Wars. It's, yeah. you know, it's fire. It's Star Wars. And I feel like it's just a testament to how skilled she actually is because she's not worried about it. <laughs> hey, that's cool. That's cool. Kath, I saw you wanted to get in a question there. Oh, what was I was going to backtrack like a lot, but Go for to, it. to piggyback off of what you were saying about the energy on set. I believe I read and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were present the day that George Lucas himself was on set. Yes. Can you speak to what the energy was like that day? Like, what was that like? It was, I mean, I was in awe. I think everybody was in awe and he was standing there, you know, holding court and just telling all these great stories. And, and the thing that I just couldn't shake was this feeling of, of wonder that this, this man who created these stories over 40 years ago with a lot of pushback, you know, it was hard for him to get the, the first film made. Um, he's still around to see what has happened after decades of like new technology and filmmaking and so many different ways that these stories have been shot and, and reimagined. 
And um, and it's still going. His legacy is still going and he gets to be there for it. And I just can't imagine what that must be like. But it was, yeah, he came for John's birthday and it was really fun to get to cool. just sit there and, and stare, really. Was everyone trying to just like play it cool, like be natural? Or was everyone low-key like freaking out a little bit? A little bit of both, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did he have any sort of input? at all and like oh you know, maybe you know that'd be cool but what, what if we do this or what if we do that in this scene or was there any sort of that or was he just i don't know i mean he, he wasn't around when i was shooting so i i can't okay. say for sure okay i would have wondered what his input would have been for stuff yeah. but it seems like i feel like the whole mandalorian show kind of takes um a lot of um touch from his show that he was going to make before he sold to Disney about the, the underworld of Coruscant. And it's, it's kind of like the underworld show of star Wars. I feel like the Mandalorian. And now yeah. that we're going into the book of Boba Fett, I can't imagine he took the throne. I can't imagine what we're going to see going forwards with that yeah. whole crime world. It's going to be pretty sick, but I hope we see you again in season three or you know, something. Bring, bring all those Mandos that we saw in episode two, season one back. I know was... there's so many incredible characters. Yeah. What the hell? We got to find out what happened to him, right? Yeah, and something I always wondered too was in the credits. Um, the the I forgot his name. The big armor, not 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 the armor. Sorry, the the big the big Mandalorian with the the Gallic gun. Um, his last name was Vizsla. Paz Vizsla, yeah. Yeah. So what the heck is that? Is he House of Vizsla? Like, is he connected to Pre? <laughs> like, that's that's. Like I feel like there's so much more to know about all of these characters, yeah. and I feel like they can bring them all back and kind of flesh it out, especially with now Bo going, you know, to Mandalore, I assume, with Din and figuring stuff out. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's going to lead stuff up for a, a sweet uh, season three. I think so. I think they're very smart in the way they've been dropping little little breadcrumbs here and there. Oh, yeah. I'm a big fan of John, so I know he's yeah. going to make some, some cool stuff. Mark, you got a question? Um. I actually see a lot of uh, folks in the chat sending in super chats about your work on Supernatural. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like you got a lot of fans in the chat. We're up to over 2,100 folks now watching, and uh, they're all giving you a lot of love on Supernatural. I personally oh, thanks, have not guys. seen it, but it's making me want to watch it. So You've only got 15 show? seasons to watch. No big deal. <laughs> you can blow Is it really that it. many? 15 yeah. seasons, oh, yeah. wow. And they could have so, kept going. It, it just ended with season 15, and it was not because it got canceled. It was not because people were tired of it. They made a choice that it was time to to end the show. Was it, Was it? were you on the, and forgive me for not knowing this, but were you on the show from the beginning through all 15 seasons? No, I joined up in season 11 and then came back in season 15. So, no, I, I have not been around for most of it. And I had a lot to learn when I did show up. What what were some of the biggest uh, differences between that production and the Mando in terms of just like little nuanced differences that like jump out at you? Um, well, I mean, Supernatural is a contemporary show. Um, and uh, what are the different? I mean, the, it's easier for me to think about the things that are similar because I feel like yeah. both sets are really, I think one of the reasons Supernatural has been going for 15 seasons is because the tone on set is also very playful and collaborative and welcoming. I mean, you never know as an actor when you're going into a long running show, what it's going to feel like. Like sometimes it's sort of like showing up for the first day of school as a transfer student. And you know that like 
there's all these systems in place and people have figured out how things work and you have to like catch up with all those systems. And sometimes it could be that, um, you know, they have things running a certain way and everyone's very nice, but there's not a lot of room for innovation. And I did not find that to be the case on Supernatural. I showed up and they, you know, they wanted to know what I had to bring to the table. They wanted to know what my ideas were. Mm-hmm. And I got to play a really fun character who was this super villain. Um, and so it was just, it was a ball. It went, and that was my first experience with working with CGI. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I felt like such a big goober when I was shooting those scenes because you know, they would tell me like, okay, hold out your arm now. And then these guys are going to like basically um, incinerate and and then it's going to look really cool. But I felt like an idiot. Like I'm just standing there with my arm out. Nothing's happening. I can't see anything. And it wasn't until I saw the episodes and got to see how cool it looked that I was finally like, oh, okay, it's going to be fine. Um, cool. But it is such a, it's such a joyful set. And there's, there's so many practical jokes and so much, just so much playfulness and people who are just really grateful to be doing what they're doing and want to make everyone else feel welcome. And, and I think that that's, that's part of the reason the show is as good as it, it was. I, uh, out of all the productions I've been on, I wish I was on your productions because I always get productions where there's a little bit, you know, there's always that one little drama happening on the side mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and, and as you know, this show really is about, um, digging deep into like the sort of filmmaking process. And we've had some great folks on here, Academy Award winners. And, you know, they always kind of are giving us an extra little piece of the puzzle. And I'm really fascinated by your positive experiences on these sets. Is there anything that you've taken away as a hallmark of a healthy production that maybe we can learn from? I think it's such a simple thing. I really think that the best actors I've worked with and the best sets I've been on are that way because people take more of an interest in other people than they do in themselves. Mm -hmm. And they're very generous that way. Um, And one of my first experiences with that, I did this, I did one season of a, a TV show on TNT called Monday mornings that nobody saw. Um, it was almost 10 years ago now. And Alfred Molina was on that show. He's great. And he, I mean, he's incredible. And it was, um, it was a medical drama that Sanjay Gupta and David E. Kelly wrote together. And oh, his wow. character had these basically monologues that were what, if, if we'd been doing a court courtroom drama, it would have been like all of the big dramatic closing arguments and stuff. But he was the chief of staff at the hospital And we would have these scenes in every episode where the doctors are having to answer for mistakes that they made. And so then he would have this long thing that he had to say. And, um, and it was stressful. Like, and he would get rewrites at the last minute and he was responsible for like carrying these huge scenes and he never, never showed any stress about it. And no matter what, he always made a point of talking to, you know, greeting everybody, everybody on the, in the cast, everybody in the crew, he made sure like everyone was feeling okay, made sure that the room was happy. And then he would go about doing his work. And if he messed up, he never stressed out. He would, um, you know, he would in a very relaxed way, he would like pause if he went up on a line and then he would either remember it or he would make something up or, but it was never a catastrophe. He wasn't ever Mm -hmm. precious about it. And that level of relaxation and, and ultimately 
I mean, I think it takes a lot of confidence to do that, but it's a confidence I think that comes with humility because he, he didn't feel the pressure to like show off. And he, even when he was responsible for carrying these scenes, he still knew that everybody else in the room was equally important. Um, and that was a big lesson because, you know, he, he was this actor that I had admired all my life. Um, and so to see him conduct himself that way was a tremendous lesson. And I feel like, look, I, I've worked with some divas too. I've seen what that's like, but I do feel like the actors, all of the best actors are also really generous, gracious people. Um, and I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think that when you can be relaxed and when you can take a genuine interest and be of service to the people around you, I think it makes your work better. And I definitely saw that on that show and I saw that on Supernatural and I've, I've saw that on Star Wars. I've seen that. I've been really fortunate to work with a lot of gracious people. And then the people that aren't gracious, you know, they have other redeeming qualities and it's okay. It's not a catastrophe. <laughs> right, right. It seems like you're very gracious. Oh, thank you for saying so. Yeah, you seem yeah. very down to earth and and just cool. Um, would you like to talk about your experience on The Last of Us 2? Because you also did mocap for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Go for um, it. Another experience where you feel like a big idiot. Because of, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you've seen the mocap suits that you had yeah. to wear. Yeah. yeah. You're wearing like a, a bodysuit with all these Velcro balls stuck <laughs> on you. And... Um, and that again is is something where you're just having to like channel your inner six year old because in those um, studios where they have to shoot it the way all the cameras are and I don't understand the technology I just know that there's like these cameras everywhere that capture all of the aspects of your movement but it means you can't really have any practical set pieces so you have like you know wire frames of things and stuff standing in for other things and you're just having to imagine all of it. Um, but that was that was a really fun, fun experience because um, partly because of how how Neil, the the creator of the game and the director of the game, how he he I had a meeting with him before I ever shot anything. And he really explained to me kind of like the legacy of The Last of Us and what it is kind of philosophically he's trying to communicate with the games and sort of the greater themes and where his passion lies within that storytelling. And so even though I only went and shot, I think it was like two days, but he cared enough about it to include me and in like what was going on. And I got like a tour of the studio and got to see a bunch of the animators and got to see how it all worked together. Um, and so I did feel like I was, I was an important piece of the, the process, even though like my part is really not that big and I, I have a very ungraceful ending. Um, <laughs> I go out like a chump. <laughs> but uh, sorry if I'm spoiling it for anybody. Yeah, um, it's been out. It's been out. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's been out. Exactly. Like it's their fault. This point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And even you know, even even if you don't know, like you play it, and you're gonna find out pretty quickly because it happens early on. Um, but it, it was it was so much fun, and and I remember uh, Jesse Graff was one of the stunt people who was working on it the day that I that I was shooting the two days that I was shooting. And um, I don't know if you know her from like American Ninja Warrior and she's mm. such a badass. She's done stunt work in the Wonder Woman movies. And so getting to watch people like that was such a treat. That's cool. So yeah. last, last week on the show, we had a gentleman on um, Roger Christian who actually designed and created the first lightsaber. And uh, he should, yeah, yeah. It was really Whoa. cool. He actually built it out of a camera flash mount right like 
you know those old style cameras with the flash mount? Yeah. That, met that metal part underneath the flash bulb is the hilt of the lightsaber. That's where it comes from. Wow. So in any case, um, we've spoken to a lot of folks that always take something from the set as a memorabilia. <laughs> Were you able to take anything from the Mandalorian set that you can disclose to no, us? No, I was too afraid Nothing? to. I thought I would be like shot down by a Disney <laughs> drone if I did. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, it's fair, fair. So I didn't, didn't take, take anything. anything. I have acquired, though, a fan made me a helmet. So I have an armor wow. helmet. Oh, that's cool. Um, and there was a fan also. I, I've done a bunch of conventions where I've gotten to meet people who do cosplay. And I had a fan who made my dog an armor costume. So she gets <laughs> to look cool. like me. And I have a piece oh. of Beskar that someone made me. Okay. Um, but no, I did not take. I, I was genuinely too scared to try to take anything. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Makes sense. Unfortunate. I would have taken a I mean, if I could, I probably <laughs> would have tried to kidnap Baby Yoda. But oh, oh, my God. That, that wouldn't have gone over very well. Did you? That so was you, the got, you got to see him, right? I'm sorry? You got to see Baby Yoda around set, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's so stupid because you know he's a puppet, but <laughs> you can't help but just be like, oh, my gosh, he's so cute. <laughs> oh, my Okay, so this I have to ask, and you don't have to answer this one if you if, if you can't. But did you know that he was named Grogu early on, or is no. that something? No, nobody knew, right? I had no idea. Yeah, fair enough. You know, I think I'm, I, I I I recorded everything as we were shooting it, but then we did some ADR, and the great thing about doing ADR when you wear a helmet is they can change your lines however they want. And I think, from what I remember. When we were first recording that last scene where I, I give him the charge of, you know, going to find his people, I don't think I even used the word Jedi. I think that that was something that they added later in ADR, because I remember when I when I read that I was going to say that I just got I got chills. I got so excited. That's I think awesome. that they said it like in a much more vague way. And then they decided it was probably too vague. So they they were specific about the fact that he was a Jedi. That's too cool, man. They probably yeah. kept so much stuff secret too from everybody until later on. Like I can't imagine what they had to do. That's with true. Luke yeah. The end, so. I mean, speaking of like secrets and unknown, you know, vagueness. I mean, your character technically, like on IMDb, is like the armorer. Did you create a name for her to personalize <laughs> it a bit more, or like? Uh, let's see. I think her name's probably Brenda. <laughs> I, I don't. I didn't. I like not knowing. Um, yeah. And and nobody has told me what her name actually is. I, I like not having a name for some reason. I like the anonymity really? of it. Yeah. If you were to write where she goes next, uh, what would you want for her? Um, the serious answer or the stupid answer? Because. <laughs> Whatever you feel like. <laughs> I did decide because I was like, what does she do in that that her, you know, armory all by herself all the time? And I decided she probably has a disco ball that comes down and she's got like a pretty sick karaoke machine. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and I think, you know, these guys are in hiding. They can't ever go out to the nightclubs or anything. So I think that she would host some good parties. But then after everyone died, <laughs> yeah. she just like. Sat She's there got a and bunch of Twi'lek friends. Yeah, found All a new club. All her friends are Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. you heard it here first. There we yeah. go. Canon. 
confirmed. <laughs> what I want to know what, what you think happened to her. Me? Uh, yeah. I think she probably banded up together with the rest of the crew. Um, and they, well, Mando kind of ruined it now because now everyone knows that there are so many Mandos around. Um, so she probably banded up with them and they're, maybe they are trying to, I don't know. It, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of strange to me that they weren't in season two, that it always bugged me. That was mm-hmm. something I thought would have happened I, at the very end. I was like, okay, so, you know, we're going to get Moff Gideon and all of his bad guys are going to team up with the dark, dark troopers. And then we're going to have Bo and she's going to bring in all of the Mandalorians that we saw in season one. Yeah. right. And yeah, that would have been a, a cool fight scene, kind of like end game. Um, but we didn't see that. I mean, we saw Luke, which I was pretty happy about, but yeah. um, I think it leaves room for, you know, season three of bringing them in. If we go back to Mandalore and, and take it back, then we could see all of them there. And maybe that's where they went. Yeah. No I think we got to find out where they went. I, I mean, I, I also like, I think it's so it's sort of heartbreaking the task that she was left with of having to, and my, my husband, um, always tracks down all these like fan theories about things that <laughs> happened. And um, one of the things he sent me recently pointed out that for her to be collecting all of that armor, you know, what happened to the bodies that were wearing that armor? And did she like burn them all in her forge, which I feel like is so, no, so creepy. chilling, but you do have to wonder, like she had these mm-hmm. massive piles of armor yeah, during, that's what she does when the disco ball comes out. She starts burning. Oh, oh that's, that's dark. <laughs> a funeral raise. Um, yeah, but yeah, and then she maybe she made her own giant Mando Mech Warrior suit. Ooh, we could just keep. Going. She's <laughs> coming back. She's gonna be decked um, out. To 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 bring it back into reality for a second. Um, <laughs> what you mentioned, which I'm really fascinated by, because I love that concept of the um, continuum of George Lucas working so closely with Dave Filoni in the Clone Wars. And in the Clone Wars, they really did go deep into the sort of legacy and the lore of Mandalore and all that stuff. Um, what what were some of the highlights when you first sat with Dave and were talking about your character that he gave you for the backstory? I honestly got no backstory. Zero. Nothing. No. Um, I, and if she and knew, I don't... she couldn't tell us. Yeah. Uh... But no, I really didn't get anything. And, and, and I, I mean, I'm sure that they, they're, they're geniuses and I'm sure that they were laying out like season five while they were still writing season one. So they sure. were probably just trying to protect me from accidentally giving away something I'm not supposed to, but um, they were very vague. And, and I, you know, I think it was also cause they wanted to let me come to my own conclusions, I guess. Um, but no, I, I really didn't get, get anything. Anything about the relationship between you and Pedro Pascal's character that that like maybe we didn't see on screen that there was some some prior relationship there or some uh, acknowledgement of each other's mm-hmm. existence before the event of the show? I think that there was, and this this is just me talking. Like this is what I came up with, but it it strikes me that from the very beginning, there's there's um, it feels like she knows him. And yeah. I feel like she has been watching him for a long time. And I think that she, you know, she's one of those archetypal mentor characters, sort of like Obi-Wan Kenobi, I think. Mm. And she knows the potential that he has. 
but I don't think that she, she also knows that she can't force him into anything that he's not ready for. So I think she's sort of been watching him. She knows that he is trying to be this lone ranger and not be connected to anybody. But I think that she sort of sees that there's more to him than that and that he has the potential to, to be something more and to be of service to, um, to people that he cares about, even though when we first meet him, like that's the farthest thing from his mind. But uh, yeah, I, I love the way that, that he keeps coming back and keeps earning in addition to like earning, you know, armor and his signet and all that. I think he's also gaining esteem and she's seeing that he is sort of capable of carrying more responsibility, which is why she ultimately says, all right, you're in charge of this little green guy. Um, yeah. Whether you yeah. like it or not, this is your duty now. Without you, I don't think he would have uh, had that little push that he needed. Yeah. So I think, I think you're right. you really set the tone. Your character set the entire tone for the show now and gave him that little prod. Hey, you know, this is, this is uh, what you got to do now. You're in mm -hmm. charge of this guy. And I feel like Grogu... I think his story is going to go on for the next, I don't know, 10, 20 years, uh, not in Star Wars, but for us, I feel like it's going to go beyond episode nine. I think he's going to become the, the next Jedi Mandalorian. And I think he's going to learn from both Luke and Din. And he's going to be like this super badass unit that just is just like Tor Vizsla. He's, he's a Jedi Mando. I think it's going to be pretty sweet because he's going to outlive everybody. So, yeah. <laughs> There's no way like everyone's yeah, gonna take over yeah. for the next nine hundred so, years. Very good point. It's a really interesting um insight that I hadn't really considered so much, but like in the monomyth archetype that Star Wars is 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 really built on, at least the first six movies. Um, and you do definitely see that during the Mandalore that the armor is in the role of the mentor. And it's not something mm -hmm. that I had easily connected before um but it's definitely her role is that role of mentor for the for the hero mm -hmm. um, it's interesting i just you know i'm basically just repeating what you said but i hadn't really thought about it like that you know for me it was more like this is because you know to me season one felt a lot like a video game you know like um you know like i had this kind of highway to heaven uh, 80s procedural television vibe a little bit, you know, where like every single week was like its own kind of standalone episode. Yeah. But you did have this continuity of him doing a mission and and solving it and then coming back to the armor and getting mm -hmm. his little uh, physical reward. But you're right. He also gets mental rewards as well, right? To like further uh, reinforce his mission. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I, uh, it helped me to think of her that way because um, it didn't feel like it was a purely transactional relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot. I, I love that there's there is so much that she doesn't say, but it feels like it's in the air in a lot of those scenes. And uh, yeah, so it helped me to think of it that way. Well, she's cool. She just kind of speaks when she needs to speak and that's it. Yeah, man, she, I could learn a lot from her that way. <laughs> Me too. She kind of feels like the John Wick of the, of the Star Wars universe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, just like a badass. Um, so we're coming up on 45 minutes. We want to be respectful of your time. Uh, let's wrap up the questions. Uh, Kat, do you have anything you want to add? Mark, just a few more. I mean, I guess just on top of all that, what do you think her view of the Jedi is? 
because clearly Din offers some pushback when she's like, mm-hmm. you have to go and willingly seek these people out. And he's like, are you kidding me? So what mm-hmm. do you think, you know, do you feel like she's reluctant in giving him this task? Like she low-key is like, I wish you didn't have to do this and deal with these people. Or what do you, how do you think she, where does she stand on this, on this subject? I think that she... Well, I mean, I, I think that she knows that there was a time in the past when the Mandalorians and the the Jedi were able to work together in some way. And I think, and again, this is just me. Nobody, this is what I came up with to help me with the character. Um, I cannot verify whether it's true or not. But, um, I and, and she's somebody who talks about like the songs of Eon's past and she's referencing like different prophecies and different things that have happened. And so I think that she's always sort of got an eye on the future and a better future. And I think that it would be a better future if maybe the Mandalorian and the Jedi could cooperate again. So I think that she knows that it's a, a challenge that she's sending him out to do this. But I think that she's somebody, it strikes me that she has... Um, I think she has a lot of faith. I think that's one of the reasons she is so patient and she doesn't push a lot. I think she has a lot of faith that uh, that what she has heard in different prophecies, that things will come to pass. So mm. she's willing to ask him to do challenging, uncomfortable things for the greater good. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, I don't know. I, I think that she's sort of hoping that it could work out, even though, she knows that she's asking him to do something that's a little bit crazy. Well, I feel like your character is um, has been around since Order 66. I think she's been around for a while and seen a lot of things. I think she's seen the clones come in and take over Mandalore, and now they've had to relocate to this underground sort of cave and be hermits, so to speak. And mm-hmm. she's just she's the leader of the pack, and she's doing what she can to keep everyone in line and make sure no one breaks the rules so that they can continue to survive because their numbers are so limited. So I think, I think, I hope that we're going to see a lot more of the, the, the armor again in the Mandalorian uh, for many more seasons and that we develop that character. And I think through her, we can learn so much about the history of Mandalore, the Mandalorians, Order 66, the Empire, and everything that went on in that time. Because I feel like she's, there's a lot of pain in those eyes, funny to say, we haven't seen her eyes yet, but yeah. I feel like if we if you take that helmet, oh yeah, yeah, I think she's seen a lot and her whole stoic behavior is um, really emphasizing the fact that she's keeping everything in line for a reason. This is the way, you gotta keep it like this, otherwise we're not gonna make it. So that's so, that's what I think. So I would get my geek card stolen from me by my buddy Jeremy Johns if I didn't <laughs> ask you about Castlevania. Um, was that was that fun to work on? Did you get into the whole Castlevania universe? What what was that experience like? It was a lot of fun. Um, I love doing voiceover, and that was another thing where I got cast in it before I really knew much about it. Like I knew the the reference material, um, but I didn't know what this actual series was going to look like. And I remember going in to record my first day. And they showed me this video sequence um, to give me a feel for what it was going to be like. And it was another one of those moments where I was like, wait, I'm what? I'm working on this. This is incredible. <laughs> right. That's um, yeah. But it was it was a lot of fun. It was also sort of odd because uh, a lot of the time in voiceover, you're you're not in the room with the other actors. You're kind of recording your own thing on your 
uh, by yourself, um, which is a little bit of a bummer because I love getting to collaborate with the other actors in real time. But um, I did get to work with Graham a little bit and, and we, we had actually done work on a video game together years before. So we were mm. never in the room together, but we got to record a few times like on, uh, we were, we could hear each other. We were like in separate places, but video or audio patched in. Um, yeah. So that was really, that was really fun. But yeah, it was, I mean, that was a wild ride. It was, it was cool to see how that whole thing unfolded. Yeah. Yeah. It became very popular. And, and just to bring it back to Mando, um, did you feel a little bit of that separation of like, oh man, I don't get to work with this actor face to face when you were having those scenes with Pedro, when you were both behind the masks and stuff? Yeah, a little bit. It was sort of odd. Um, especially because I, I know Pedro, we had, we'd first met in New York through like theater friends and then we worked mm. together on the mentalist. Sure. Um, but that was also helpful because I already knew him and um, and I don't know, it, it just sort of made it, it there was a, a beautiful synchronistic way that it all made sense when we were it was OK that we couldn't. I, I mean, I felt OK that I couldn't see other people's faces. I felt like they oh, look who just turned up. <laughs> yeah, I had to get <laughs> <laughs> I felt like everybody was such good actors that it, it didn't matter that I couldn't yeah. see their faces. That's cool. Well, um, Catherine, you, you have any last uh, questions to throw in here? You've been very generous with your time, Emily. Really generous. Thank Thank you so oh, this has been so, so much and, fun. It flew um, by. We know we got a lot of super chats, so all of the money you guys sent in will be donated to St. Jude's. So uh, we appreciate all of you, and um, thank you. Catherine, do yeah. you have anything? No, thank you so much for being so willing to share and talk about your experience My and giving pleasure. some more insight to the set experience. It's so awesome to like hear about what it, what it was like doing this awesome project. So thank you for sharing. It's easy yeah. to talk about because it was so much fun. Yeah, hopefully uh, after season three, we'll get you back on the show and uh, and maybe uh, you know you both take off your masks. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, cool. but um, juicy. Little reminder to the to the uh, listeners out there: go to StarWarsTheory.com. Uh, keep the conversation going over there. Uh, we've been having a lot of fun uh, with all the new features to the site. Um, check out the um, podcast on Spotify. You can listen to it on Spotify uh, and anywhere else you find podcasts. But at this point, Spotify is really the only thing I have on my phone. But um, and um, yeah, rise. So can we can we all get a this is the way as we sign oh, out? No, 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 not all. She should do it, right? Yeah, hey, this, <laughs> the chat whatever. is like blowing well, the chat keeps asking, before. and I don't, I don't, yeah. I hate to push, so I'm just like, let's all do it, so that, you know. But Emily, <laughs> you comfortable with that? I I can do that, sure. All okay. right, everyone, we'll we'll see you later. Right. Thanks so much. This is the way.